You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. All right. We good? Am I off back here? Am I off? There. Welcome. Ah, I live. Um, speaking of peace. Uh, we have a long way to go before the sun sets today, so uh, you guys ready to go to work? This is the second week in our Advent series. Last week we talked about hope, and we raised this question, do you want to be used by God? Because it seems as if those who are used by God to accomplish his greatest things often have to walk a terribly difficult road to get there. And so um, most of us, I think, I think most people would bail out long before they saw God's resolve of the blessing. And so I want to give us, we talk about Zachary and Elizabeth and the lifetime of shame that was culminated with this amazing act by God that changes human history. Like it's beautiful, but they had to go through a lot of shame to get there. We're going to go through another example today. And today we are talking about peace and we're talking about the birth of Jesus. Now this peace candle in the Advent is interesting to me because every year we promise ourselves, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to lose it like I did last year, right? Like I'm not going to blow a stack. I'm not going to be, and, and so I'm, I'm not going to get wound up in all this stuff, all this Christmas stuff. I'm not going to um, I'm not going to do what I did last year. And then every year we find ourselves again going, okay, now this year, this is the year I'm not going to do it again. Because while it's supposed to feel peaceful and we have these ideals of what Christmas is and the, you know, the have yourself a merry little Christmas. Yeah. That's why I don't lead worship. And so... Um, because I can't. Uh, we, we want this ideal of, you know, everything being resolved and beautiful. And in the end of the, the movie, all the family comes together and loves each other, right? That's the ideal. But in our home, when our family gets together, we all have the crazy uncle that's like, he's a lunatic. And, and we have the, the mom that is going to say the dumb thing that's going to set everybody off. And the kid that's out of control and nobody parents the child. And you want to like physically abruptly love them. Um, it's for your good. You know, uh, like it's like we get into our crazy chaos of Christmas and it's a mess. And like, where's the peace in this? And then that's just the family side. That doesn't even include the, the fact that there's going to be somebody that's going to buy you a fruitcake and you're not going to like it, but you got to reciprocate with another crappy gift. And so you got to figure out like, what? okay, so what do I do? And if I don't buy him something, then how does that feel? And I don't know, all this, like we get, where's the peace? Like, do you feel peaceful at this time of year? Because most people don't. And that doesn't even include the people that don't have anyone to share the holiday with. And that, like one of the highest times of the year of suicide is during the holidays. This time of peace and shalom and brotherly love and all that stuff leads to a time of incredible despair. Like where does peace come from for us? 
I love this video, which, by the way, did a phenomenal job of describing peace. And it's put out by a group called The Bible Project. If you want any, like they have lots of these kinds of videos. The Bible Project is awesome. You can find them on YouTube. Um, they are amazing. But where does peace come from? Like, where is it? Does it come from the fact that we have chestnuts roasting on an open fire? And whatever the next line is, I don't even know the next line of that Christmas carol. Jack Frost nipping at your nose, right? Is that where peace comes from? Yuletide carols being sung by a choir and folks dressed up like Eskimos. Everybody knows, right? Like, is that, is that where peace comes from or is there something else going on? I want to invite us into the original Christmas story and see if there isn't some things that we can learn because there's a whole lot going on below the story that nobody talks about. And so I want to explore that today. Luke chapter 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Okay, question. Why does an emperor take a census? Taxes. This is a tax issue. You are coming to your hometown to pay taxes. That's what's going on here. Now, that being said, let me tell you how the taxes work. You come to your hometown, your city of origin, and you give an account for everything that you own, all your property, all your possessions, all the, the number of children that you have, all this stuff. You come and you give an account. Now, they don't have deductions in their tax law. Their deductions are, I'm not telling you the whole truth. I'll give you 80% of my estate, but not the full hundred. And, and we go, wow, that's, like, that's dishonest of those people. How could they? Well, it's not so great on the other side either because the Roman governor is told you need to collect X amount of dollars for your region. Well, how does the Roman governor get paid? He gets paid by overcharging the people who are coming to give an account for their taxes. So he's manipulative, and all the way down, every person in this process is taking a cut over and above. So by the time it gets to the person who's actually taking the, paying the tax, of course they're going to lie about how much they do, but the problem with that is everybody knows it. And so the, the governor says, so have you accounted for everything? It, yeah. Really, you've accounted for everything. Everything? You've accounted for everything. Yeah, everything. Everything I've got is it's all here. It's all here. Everything. And really, everything. Because like this young, this fine young boy that you have here, man, what a fine son. You must be so proud. How about if I kill him? Have you accounted for everything? Now all of a sudden I'm making stuff up. And it happened. Your your beautiful wife here, man, you're a lucky man. Whew, uh, so fortunate to have a wife like this. How about if I turned her over to the army soldiers? Have you accounted for everything now? This is a messy, nasty, gross, tension-filled point in history, and we read it in one sentence and gloss over it like it's some sweet thing. This is yucky. It is full of tension. And the Prince of Peace is about to come. To that. But it gets better. 
It gets better. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in the Galilee to Judea. It is weird because he's in the north and goes south, and it says he went up, but for them, it's not about north and south. It's about elevation. So that's why that says that. To Bethlehem and to the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now, I love how the new NIV has translated this as a guest room because that's absolutely more accurate. But the traditional idea that we've had come to accustomed to is what? There's no room for them in the inn, right? And we think La Quinta. We think Motel 6, Super 8. That's what we think, the inn, the hotel. Hotel, motel, holiday inn. That's what we think, right? Well, that's not what, none of that existed in the first century. And especially not in a town like Bethlehem, which was a town of only about two to 300 people. Now, let me explain to you. I want to walk through this and really set the stage here. And every year... Every year, we have somebody that uh, emails us and says, well, you know, many scholars believe it's this, and I mean, really, if you consider it, so here's what we're going to do. Rather than just giving you my opinion, we're going to lay the whole case out and show you that in the end, regardless of where you stand on it, it doesn't change a thing. This is yucky, okay? Now, I want to give you the first Greek word that we want to look at here, and this is important. We're going to look at two Greek words, and this is important. So the first Greek word is the word pendoxion. Say pendoxion. It means an inn, and I will show you a picture of it, what it actually looked like in a minute, but, um, or a few minutes, but this is the first word. This, this is not the word used in Luke chapter 2, but this is the first word that we want to look at. The question is, does Luke understand how to use this word, okay? So I want to take a look at a passage from the Gospel of Luke in Luke chapter 10. Let's take a look at it. This is from the story of the Good Samaritan. So remember, he finds the, the guy who was beaten up by robbers and left for dead, and he comes to him, and nobody else would help him, but the Good Samaritan helps him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to a pendoxion, an inn, and took care of him. Now, the question is, does Luke understand how to use the word pendoxion? The answer is yes, absolutely he does. This is exactly what he would have done. And in fact, we have a speculation, we can't know for sure, but we have pretty educated speculation that we know which pendoxion Jesus was actually referring to in the story, okay? Now, the second word that we want to take a look at is the word kataluma. Say kataluma, Kataluma means a guest room. And the next question is, does Luke know how to use the word kataluma? Well, let's take a look at this from Luke chapter 22. And say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the kataluma? Does he understand how to use it? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. Now, the question is, when you've heard this passage in the past, where is the Passover held? In the kataluma, but what, what do we call it? In the upper room, 
right? It's a room, it's a guest room attached to your house where guests stay, okay? So I want to give you a couple of different examples of diagrams of actual houses that we've actually excavated, uh, we, the, they have actually excavated, that have been uncovered, and here's the first one. This is actually called the Pillared House. It's just outside of Jerusalem, and it gives us a good example. So what you see here is the diagram where you have the living spaces. You have an open courtyard, and then you have over here the chicken coop and the kitchen and stuff over here. And then all the way on this end, away from everything else, you have the Kataluma, right? So this is an example, very traditional example of what a first century Israeli insula house would look like. Now, in these insulas, you would have as many as 60, 70, 80 people living in one space, right? And they, and, and they didn't have rooms like um, you have a bedroom and you have a bedroom and all your kids have their own room because this is what we need to provide for our children. No, they're like 10, 15 of them sleeping in one room to which you go, how then are they able to have so many children if you think about it? Well, the insulas actually had a room for that, and you would reserve it, and everybody knew what you were doing in there. Like, that room was for that purpose, and what we do is go, ew, gross, <laughs> right? One of the problems that we have in our culture is that we celebrate all the wrong things about sexuality, and we keep hidden all the things about sexuality that are supposed to be so beautiful and good and sacred. Like, we've got it all backwards, and so we don't know what to do with a culture like that, and yet I would submit that these children are raised with a much healthier understanding of sexuality than our children are in our culture. So this is one thing. Now, question. I'll tell you a story. I had a, uh, this one Christmas, I was a little kid, and we had a bunch of people that came in from out of town to stay at our house for Christmas. It was packed. There was like, multi, like four or five families staying at our house. We didn't have a big house, but we were like, we had children, the, us children were staying up in the attic with a space heater. Like it was super safe. <laughs> OSHA approved, I'm sure. It was like, like, it was terrible. It was awful, you know, and we did all kinds of pranks on each other when we were sleeping, whatever. So, it was packed, like we were all kind of squished into this house, but it was Christmas and we were all hanging out. Well, then my mom, part of my mom's family surprised us by showing up for Christmas. Okay, what did we do? Make space for them. Why? Because they're family. That's what family does. So when we say there's no room for them in the guest room, Something else is going on there, and we need to figure out what it is. Because the truth is, she's ready to give birth, and you're telling me you can't make space for the pregnant lady? Like, I'll kick 18 junior high boys to the curb, and furthermore, in this culture, you have an honor-shame culture. Think about the story of Lot, when the two visitors come to visit Lot, and he takes them in as his guests, and the people of the town come to his house and they say, send out those two guys. We want to have sex with them. And Lot's like, no way. What does he do? He sends his daughters out instead of them, to which we go, no way. But in their culture, you die before you let your guests have anything bad happen to them. 
That's the way that they think. We don't even have a frame of reference for that, but that's how they think. And so consequently, the fact that there's no room for these guests who are part of our family in the Cataluma, there's something else going on there. We need to explore what that is. Okay, let me give you another diagram. Here's another example of another house. Uh, this one is a little further north in Israel than the other one. This is an actual excavation, but you can see that there's a living space. The living space is actually up on a little bit of a hill. And then around on the other side, what you see is a cave. And in that cave is a stable. The living space is built on top of it. I'll show you some pictures of what that looks like in just a minute. Now, Here's the deal. There are three basic options for what does this mean? There are no room for him. There's no room for them in the guest room. There's, there, what, what are those options there? So I'm going I'm to walk you through each of those options. So here's option number one. Option number one is a shepherd's cave. Now, this is a place that I actually take people to in Israel. So if you want to come with me to Israel, we'll go here. This is at a place called Kokov Hafshahar, which rolls right off the tongue. Uh, it's wonderful. Um, this is a group that I actually was with there. And this is a cave. Now, this cave is not the cave that Jesus was born, but it's a great example. This one is larger. And personally, I hold to this theory that it was a shepherd's cave. That, so I want to be clear about that. You can think differently, and I'll, I'll give you all the options you can pick, but I'm right. Um, <laughs> so next photo. Here's the photo a little closer. This gives you kind of a, a scope, a, a frame of reference for how big this, this particular cave is. Next photo. I want you to look at the inside of the cave. This is the ceiling of the same cave. What do you notice? This black stuff up there, what is it? Soot from a thousand, thousand shepherd's fires. So sanitary. Next photo. This is a, uh, inside the cave. You can see the soot on the top. So clean, so precious, so soft. Welcome to the world, baby Jesus. Prince of Peace. By the way, this gray stuff on the ground here, it's not pea gravel, it's not dirt. It's sheep doo-doo. And it's over a foot deep. As soon as, like, this is one of those places for me, as soon as I walk out of here, I'm hitting hand sanitizer because it just makes me feel like I need to take a shower. It's so nasty and dirty. And by the way, how much wood do you see there? None. The whole idea of the crossbuck manger with the hay and it's all soft and pretty and clean doesn't exist. There are no trees there to build. They don't build anything out of wood. They build it all with stone. Because I don't know if you noticed, but there's a couple of rocks to use. They build everything with stone there. Nothing with wood. Well, then where did we get the traditional wood manger? Alexander the Great. The Western church took it over and perverted it. Why? Because we want to prettify... That's a word I made up just for you guys today. We want to prettyify the Christmas story. God becoming man and coming into the world needs to be pleasant and sanitized for us. It needs to be cleaned up and made nice. Listen, this is your Christmas story. Do you want to be used by God? So this is our first option. Let's look at the next option. Well, I can see, let's go to the next picture. This is another example. And this cave is here because I want you to see this would be a cave where they could potentially build a house on the top of it. Does that make sense? 
So this would be an idea where you have the house, the living space is on top. You have the cave underneath as the stable. This would be an example of that second diagram that I showed you. So let's show the next picture. This is actually the cave that Marty takes his people to. I mean, it's okay if you want to do this one, but mine's better. So the um, so come with me is the moral of the story. So anyway, uh, you can see the space here and you can see all the consistent things. The blackness of the ceiling, it's soot. The, the, you can see the, those, little, those little pebbles on the ground are not rocks. This is a mess. Like this is a yucky, nasty, dirty, stinky space. Now let me show you option number two. So that's option number one, shepherd's cave. Option number two, this is a traditional Galilean insula house. This would be a traditional space where people in Israel would have lived in the first century, the central living space of an insula. And, and then this archway here, if they didn't have a cave, this archway here on the bottom, that would be right here next to where the donkey's posing for you dramatically. That would be where you would keep the animals. Now let me show you a picture of what it looks like inside that. So yeah, they're in the house, maybe, but is it better? Like this is where they keep all the animals. How often do animals poop on the floor? On the regular. I just said that. Um, like I would never... I would never, in, I'm not part of an honor-shame culture, and in a million years, I would never put a guest in my home in there. Now, junior high boys, I'd stick in there all day long. They would love it. And it would probably improve their smell. Like, let's be honest. But I would never put a woman giving birth to a child. So pick this one. It, like you can pick them. They didn't kick them out to a cave. They could just put them in the stable area of their home. Okay, pick it. Is it any better? Like this is horrible. Stinky, smelly, no ventilation. They're laying in feces, nasty, dirty. Even if they swept it out, animals go to the bathroom multiple times a day. Like this isn't a clean, pleasant place. Welcome to the world, baby Jesus, option two. Here's the third option. This is actually a penduxion. It's an inn. And what you see here is the living quarters up here are the sleeping quarters up here in the top. And this fenced area would be an area where you would put your camels or your donkeys or your sheep or whatever you're moving. As you're traveling along, whatever you're using to ride, you would put it in there um, and keep those there and they would be safe. So next photo. This is the living space. And this is going to be a little bit hard for you to figure out visually. So I'm going to describe it to you. This is the place where you would actually go in and sleep. Now, the other thing that you would do here is you would go in and if you had an, if it was too cold for the animals outside, or if you had an animal that was injured, or if you had something like that going on, you would actually move them inside of this with you and you sleep alongside your animals. You don't get your own room with a bathroom and a television and a, two queen beds like everybody gets, like you don't have any of that. You're sleeping on the dirt on the floor with the animals that are injured. 
So you're not only are you with uh, the nasty feces stuff, but you're also with all the sickness and stuff that's going on in there and all the way that the feces carries bacteria. It's a super sanitary place. So what I want to do is the next photo that I'm going to show you is straight away from the guy in the blue shirt with the yellow hat and around the corner. So it'll be the side view of this living space. So let's look at the next picture. This is where you go in and you, you enter into the pendoxion, into the inn. Now let me show you another picture. It's not easy to take pictures in there because inside of that space, it's very short and it's very dark. Let me show you one more picture. This is the floor of the inn. That's not dirt. So let's say it was an inn. Is it any better? You pick the one you want. Jesus' entry into the world is nasty, dirty, horrible business. In what world would you ever have a pregnant lady give birth next to animals? Well, think about this for a second. I have a 21-year-old daughter. She's amazing. She's one of my favorite people in the whole world, which is good because she's my daughter. Let's say she comes into me one day and she says, Dad, I'm pregnant, but don't worry about it because it was the Holy Spirit. My first few words out of my mouth would be something like, where and who is the boy? Like there's, you get this, right? Like we're not stupid. I'm pregnant, but it's, like, they weren't any dumber than we were, than we are. It's the same thing. What you'll remember from the Matthew account is that Joseph, it says, had a mind to put her out of the, uh, to divorce her quietly. Now, he has three options. He has three options, legally three options in this scenario. She comes to him and says, I'm pregnant, and he knows it's not his. Number one option he can stone her to death. Not stone like Washington State stone, like, uh, not like that. Stone her like throw rocks at your head until you die. Stone, kill her. You'd have her put to death. It's option one. Legally, he could do it. Option number two is he could divorce her and get her put out of the village her family would reject her. The village would reject her. She would basically be shunned. That's option two. And it's legally something that he could do. Option number three is he could accept her in her pregnancy and keep her with him. Now remember, they're not married yet. They're just engaged. But in this culture, once you're betrothed to be married, you actually have to get a divorce to separate the betrothal, not just the marriage. But if he chooses to bring her in, what he's telling everyone else is that it's his. And in order to do that, he's taking on her shame. He has to. 
And so both Mary and Joseph know, like, this was something that was done by God. This is supposed to be a good thing that's going to change the world and redeem it and bring beauty and wonder. The Prince of Peace is about to enter. Are you ready? They're shunned. Why are they in a cave or in the stall where the animals sleep in the house? Why are they there? Why is there no room for them in the guest room? If any time that your family shows up and you, you would make more room for them and their family wouldn't, why? Like I reposed the question, do you really want to be used by God? Because it seems to me as if this could get pretty messy. Merry Christmas, baby Jesus. Welcome to the world. You're being born into the nastiest environment that we could think of. Culturally full of tension and just gross treatment of people. Rape and killing and all kinds of nasty stuff going on and lying and deceit. And the Prince of Peace steps into that. And you're being born in a bunch of animal poop in the nasty, smelly, awful, horrible, stinky, yucky, gross place. Welcome, Prince of Peace. Bring peace to that. What I love about the peace candle is that Jesus' promise of peace and the advent of Christ's invitation is not to the absence of conflict. It's an invitation to the stables of our own heart because it is there that the Christ child meets us. We work so hard to be people who have it all together. We want to look right. We want to be fixed. We don't want to look stupid ever. We want to look at me. I have it together. I got things figured out. And if you just did what I would tell you, the world would be a better place. And I don't have any messed up places, which first of all is a lie. It's you deceiving yourself. But secondly, the problem is God doesn't want to meet you there. God doesn't want to meet you in the fixed plastic places of your life. God wants to meet you in your stables. Where is your mess? The advent is an invitation to be honest about that. Not that the pain isn't there. Not that the trauma isn't real, but that it is there that God meets us so that he can heal it and redeem it. I don't go into Christmas season with my family and the crazy uncle and the out-of-control child and all that stuff and the present buying. I don't go into that believing that because I said yes to Jesus, magically it's all going to be better. The, the tension is real. But the Prince of Peace invites me to find him there. It is impossible for me. It is impossible for me to find the Prince of Peace in the fixed places of my life. I gotta go to the mess. It's just the way it is. And so the invitation of the Advent is an invitation to the messy places. The question is, will you find the Christ child this season? He's already told you where he is. 
And with that in mind, we're going to do a couple of things. First of all, we're going to pass the buckets. They talked about those buckets earlier. Those buckets are there for those cards. If, you have, if you're like in a position right now where you're like, my life is a mess. Like I, everything, there's no peace here. We'd love to meet with you. We'd love to visit with you. We'd love to talk with you about that. We can't take it from you, but we can sit with you in it. There's a power in not being alone. So write that down in that card. When the bucket comes by, I want you to drop it in there. It's also an opportunity if you want to give tithes and offerings and those kinds of things, it's an opportunity for you to do that as well. The other thing that we're going to do is we're going to uh, take communion together. And communion is something that we do as a church every week. We have an open table at our church. What that means is anybody who's willing to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us is invited to partake in the communion with us. But we want you to hold the elements till the end. We'll take it all together. So uh, those of you that are passing out communion, go ahead and go grab that and pass it out. While they're passing that out, I want us to work through a few implications of this sermon. So the implications are, these are things that um, we hope that you can take away from the message today. Probably there's lots of other things that you are thinking about, and that's all good and wonderful, and uh, encourage that. These are a few things that stuck out to us as we prepared the sermon this week, okay? Implication number one. God doesn't avoid the mess. He embraces it. Like, I love that. You got mess in your life? good news. There's no part of your life that is so messy that God doesn't want to meet you in it. You can't mess it up bad enough. And believe me, I've tried. You can't mess it up bad enough that God won't meet you there. What he does with it is that he reveals the truth about himself and us in the mess. And that way, he can reconcile and redeem it. Next implication. Peace comes from our ability to trust that the mess does not mean that God is absent. It does not mean that he doesn't care about you. And it does not mean that he's upset with you in some way. I've got some. Thank you. Does not mean that he is absent. Doesn't mean that he doesn't care about you. And it does not mean that he's upset with you in some way. And you know this, when you're in the midst of the mess, it often feels like we did something wrong and that's why God is allowing this to happen. And yet what we can see from the Christmas story is it is quite possible that God wants to use your mess to change human history. The question is, will you let him? Will you let him? Next implication. Who we are in relationship is who we are in relationship. I love that. Like, who we are in relationship is who we are in relationship. Think about it this way. I've heard so many Christians say, man, I love the Lord, but I hate people. <laughs> like, I, I, I've heard pastors, you know, us spiritually mature folk, <laughs> that said to me, you know, ministry would be great if it wasn't for people. Here's the thing. Our relationships with people reveal to us what's true about our relationship with God. And if you want to have a better relationship with God, you need first to work really hard at having better relationships with other people. It will open up worlds to you in understanding God. 
Incidentally, if you want to have better relationships with people, you need to be working really hard at your relationship with God. So you're like, well, which one is it, the chicken or the egg? Yes. Who you are in relationship is who you are in relationship. So don't pull away from people to work on your relationship with God. That doesn't work. We pull away from people because we want to stay wounded. But if you're wounded in your relationship with people, you're wounded in how you're communicating with God. It's just true. It's just true because who you are in relationship is who you are in relationship. It doesn't matter who it's with. And eventually, you'll find it out. So the invitation of the Advent is get right in our relationship with God so that in the midst of our messes, we can be right with other people. Last implication. Get messy. Here's a hard invitation for the Christmas season because I know, like, we love the lights and the pretty. I walked in here this morning and I was like, ooh, that's pretty. Like, we, I don't know that I would do it in a church, but, you know, whatever. It's pretty. Um, here's what I know about getting messy. We love lights and trees and presents under the tree, all wrapped up with a bow, right? Everybody knows. Some turkey and some mistletoe, which, by the way, bad year to hang out mistletoe, but another conversation. Um, like, there, there, we love to have these pretty things going on all around us, and pretty, and lights, and glitz, and big signs on the sides of buildings. Like, do all that stuff. Decorate your house. Do it all. We have our house is all decorated up. My wife looks forward to it every year. I watch TV um, while she's doing it. Totally family engaged. Uh, do it. Do that. That's not. It's not wrong, but that's not Christmas. The Advent is about shunning all that as far as finding meaning, and we find meaning in going to the messy places in our own heart and the messy places in the hearts of the people around us. And I know there's a whole lot of us in here that are like, man, I wish somebody would be okay with my mess in my life. Like the Advent is like good news. There is someone. Get messy this Christmas. Go to the honest places. Tell your mom you're not going to let her have the crazy conversation and then don't get upset about it. Tell your crazy uncle to shut up. You know. Put the crazy kid in a room. Lock the door. <laughs> Feed him on a tray under the door. I don't know. Like you got to figure out what the mess looks like and how you're going to deal with it, but don't avoid it. Don't avoid it because peace never comes from avoiding the mess. It only comes from embracing it and pushing through by the power of God. It's just the truth. Press into the mess. What I love about communion is this gentle reminder. It's this gentle reminder every week that we do that says, here's what it looks like to have peace. It doesn't look like pressing your own agenda. It looks like laying your life down for the good of other people. This reminds us that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the dinner, he took a cup, and he said, this cup, it's a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. Mm. 
Lord, thank you for the way that you love us. Thank you for the invitation to our mess. Thank you for patiently waiting for us there day after day after day. And I pray for courage to honestly look at those places in our life this year. In your name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com.